Good morning. Glad you guys are all here. Um, man, that sounds really loud from here. I don't know why. Um, but before we get started, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, our community group that we're going to get started. Chris, I don't know if you want to pull the slide up while we're talking about it. But this has been on Jessica's and, and my our, like our hearts for a while to start a community group. We've been praying about it and what we want to do, what kind of material we want to cover. And Jess found a great book. It's called Glorious God, Glorious Gospel. And it's a, it's an interactive family devotional. It comes with a, a workbook for kids and, and coloring page and that kind of stuff. So our community group is going to be um, geared towards people that like us that have small families, young families. But it's not exclusive like to anybody, you're more, every, anybody and everybody is more than welcome to come um, just to see what it means to be a family on mission. And so um, I think from just whatever age you are, whatever stage of life you are, it'll be beneficial to see and go through this book together. So I'm excited for it. And the last thing I'd encourage you, if you're part of a community group, we want you guys to stay in those community groups. Don't, don't leave one community group and jump around and go to all of them. These community groups are, are kind of like these tight-knit families that we want you to be a part of. And so if you're in one um, and you're interested in this one, maybe talk to your community group leader about, you know, what, what we're studying and, and see what their thoughts are. And maybe it's something they can say, hey, you know what, I think that would be good. And not that we don't want you here, but I think this would be good for you. So, yeah, stay, encourage you to stay in your community groups uh, um, or, or come join ours. So um, let's get started. Chris already prayed for us, so um, we're going to jump right into Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 8. So if you'll... Uh, Open up your Bibles, Bible apps, whatever it, whatever it is you have. Oh, man, I forgot to upload a quote. Dang it. Forgot a slide. Uh, verses 1 through 8. Can I, I just got to say, when I'm sitting here during announcements and stuff and waiting to get ready to, to start the sermon, I wish you get like... I wish I had a microphone on my heart because my heart like starts beating out of my chest when I'm getting ready to preach and I get so nervous and my hands are all clammy and sweaty and I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I, if I just had that microphone, you guys would hear how crazy like it is inside right now. <laughs> but so Acts 8 verses 1 through 8, and Saul approved his execution and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Philip proclaims Christ in Samaria now. Th now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. So a quick recap um, from Acts. We just learned last week that Stephen was stoned to death, and we were introduced to this character named Saul. And the churches began to explode and just go kind of crazy. And, and people are being saved. God's adding to the numbers daily. Um, so there's my quick recap. I forgot to write all my recap notes and realized that maybe you haven't been here and haven't heard all the sermons. So um, that's kind of where we're at. But to start things off, like, I'm sure you guys know this about me, but I'm, a, I'm kind of a crybaby. I cry all the time when I'm preaching. I cry during music. I get, like, I'm just kind of a crybaby. And, like, movies make me cry. One that, like, I remember sitting there watching 
um, was the movie Big Hero 6 about, you know, the robot Baymax and everything that's going on. And I remember watching that movie, and there's a part when uh, Baymax, the, the one main character, I don't remember the kid's name, he kind of sacrifices, he sacrifices his own life so that the kid can be saved. And I just like burst out in tears because it's just this picture of the gospel and he comes back to life and I'm like sitting there crying with my kids and they're like, what the heck's the matter with dad? You know, <laughs> and then another movie that brought me to tears is The Greatest Showman. Um, I, I even preached a, a kind of a sermon uh, on um, like how that movie affected me. And I remember watching that for, for the first time and my niece Gabby reminded me this uh, the other day when we were watching The Greatest Showman in the movie theaters. And they come on and they start singing the song, This Is Us. And I'm sitting there like wiping my eyes. And she's like, remember when you were crying during The Greatest Showman, Uncle? I'm like, oh, thanks, Gav. But that song, the, mo- the, 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 the This Is Us, I just related to and felt like so much in that. Because a lot of times when I was growing up and in high school and stuff, uh, I kind of fell out of place from my friends and didn't like really feel like I fit in with the group of people that I was hanging out with. And they were kind of the skater, like punk type t- kids. And then there was, like, I was also an athlete, but I didn't quite, like, identify with these jocks and how they were. And so I just felt kind of out of place. So when that song was saying, I was like, I I just felt like it it really spoke to me. So, um, you know, movies movies make me cry all the time. Real life events, real life things that happen, um, they move me. They make me cry. Um, You know, when I see brokenness, when there's, you know, a death of a family member or or friends or loved ones, close ones getting divorced. And it's just really hard, and it affects me. And a lot of times in those things, I break down in tears myself for what's happening in other people's lives. And then also there's times when I cry, rejoice with tears of joy. Like when I seen the post by Chris and Maria, and they posted about having a baby, I'm laying in bed, and I start weeping. I'm like, oh, man, that is so cool. Like, like, it's going to be such a fun experience. And I just get excited for, like, new life and weddings and babies and those type of things. They just bring me to tears. And side note, I think my wife is a little too excited for the Polito's baby because, man, she has been so baby hungry lately. <laughs> but um, And so this kind of brings me to, to the type of person that I am, who I am, how God's created me. And I realized something is that I'm a, I, I didn't really know what the word meant until my wife explained it to me. I don't remember when. But I'm an empathetic person. I have empathy, not sympathetic, but empathetic. And so I had to look, what does empathetic mean? And it says, uh, the uh, psychological identification with feelings, thoughts, or attitudes of others. Now, when I get in these moments and these times of like this, these times of empathy with people, I don't really fully understand what they're going through because I'm not them. I don't have their thoughts. I don't know, you know, what everything that they're going through. But I put myself in their shoes and it just, you know, it, it, it either breaks me or it brings me to tears of joy. And um, I, I've starting to realize that this is a gift that God's given me and uh, that it's something that I can um, use to point people towards Christ. And I come to the other part where I said I'm empathetic but not sympathetic. I am not a sympathetic person at all. Uh, It's weird to me, like, as I examine myself for this, like, how can I be empathetic but not sympathetic? And I started looking at how I respond, like, when I feel those emotions of other people. And when I see like some brokenness or sin, I, I lack the sympathy to have compassion on that person, to have grace and to love on that person because I'm very much so a fix-it type of person. Like when my wife and I, when we get in a fight and there's something wrong, I want to just get to it and fix it. 
There's no like processing what's going on. I get irrational. I don't think things through. I say things I don't mean, and I just want to fix it. So when I see those things and I feel those things, instead of having sympathy and grace, I get into that fix-it type of mentality, and it's like, well, what did you expect when you did that? What did you expect when you acted this way? And rather than coming alongside them and walking alongside them and, and showing, you know, who Christ is through that, um, I, I, I lack that, that, uh, that sympathy area. And I need more of Jesus in this area because John 1, 17, he says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And I lack that, graces, uh, that grace area. And I seem to jump to, like, just the truth of things. The truth system hurts, this, you know, that when that brokenness happens. And I jump to those things, and, and like, the, the truth is, is that sin sucks. I'm a sinner, my wife's a sinner, my son's a sinner, my daughter's a sinner, and we all need Jesus to remind us that he came with grace and truth. So, and, and as I, I'm still sorting these things out, I'm like, why am I so empathetic but not sympathetic? Here's, here's one thing, like, like, why I feel like I'm empathetic. I have a wild imagination. I am a very, like, cartoony, imaginative type of person. Um, I, I don't know if I'd consider myself a creative, but just imaginative. And um, I just, I think of things differently, and I look at situations, and, and just, I, I have a wild imagination and kind of run wild in those thoughts. And so I think why I'm so empathetic is I, I imagine myself in those people's shoes, and the old saying goes, you can't understand what someone is going through until you've walked a mile in their shoes. So today, we're going to walk a mile in some shoes, maybe a couple miles, because we're going to, we got two people that we're going to look at. So we're going to walk two miles. Hope you guys got your walking shoes on. So the first set of shoes that we're going to walk in, well, walk in, is going to be Saul. So I'm going to give you a little bit of background of who Saul was, and then we're going to walk a mile, uh, walk a little ways in his shoes. So Saul, he was born in Tarsus, Saul of Tarsus, which is in Turkey. Um, he, was, he was born in Turkey, but he possessed a dual citizenship, and, and he was also known as a Roman. And as I was um, looking into where Paul came from and who he was, this word civitas, C-I-V-I-T-A-S came up. And what I understood, if you know this reference, it was kind of like having a members-only jacket to be a, a Roman citizen, that you had this, this uh, jacket on and you were kind of distinguished and you were somebody because you were a Roman citizen. And because of this, uh, being having this dual citizenship of Tarsus and Rome, it, indications point that he, uh, his family, family may have had like some moderate wealth, that they were pretty well off. Uh, he was a Hebrew and a Greek-speaking Jew. And uh, as I dove in deeper, he was very deep into the Pharisaic lifestyle. Philippians 3, 5 through 7. Uh, if you want to open that up, there's a few verses to read. I didn't pull it up. Philippians 3, 5 through 7. It says this. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. 
circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So we see that he was deep into this Pharisaic lifestyle. He calls himself a Hebrew of Hebrews, 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 Hebrew of Hebrews. And we, we can see that he was like Paul, Saul kind of viewed himself as the best Jew. As we look into Paul's account, he was the best Pharisee. He was educated and he learned and he studied under Gamaliel, who we learned about when he said that, you know, these guys are going to phase out. So there's a little bit about Saul there. And now where he came from in the tribe of Benjamin, that's where the tribe he belonged to, the 12 tribes of Israel, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. And I thought, I saw, thought this was an interesting fact as I was looking into the tribe of Benjamin, but they were known for their military victories and violence. It kind of went hand in hand with identifying with the tribe of Benjamin. So that, that kind of paints a picture of where Saul is coming from and why he did the things that maybe he did. And so now that we know his upbringing, we can uh, look through, as, we look th- as I look through the Bible, we can see that accounts point that they were, Jesus and Saul, they were in the same areas at the same time. It doesn't really say that they ever met face to face. The first time when Jesus and Saul came face to face was on the road to Damascus, which we're not going to cover that this week. That's going to be Chris's sermon next week. But accounts point that they were in the same areas at the same time. So he might have been uh, around Jesus before, but we don't really know that. Now we're going to put ourselves in Saul's shoes. We think of the stories, the miracles, the things Saul was hearing, seeing, feeling. And I imagine as I put myself in those shoes, how he feels when he's hearing about this Jesus character when he's hearing about the miracles, the things that people are saying, the things that Jesus is doing as he hears about, like him meeting with this woman at the well. Someone shares that story with him. As he hears about him leaving to go save one person in one city, as he hears about uh, Jesus walking in water, these things, like Jesus was here for three years, and he's hearing all these things going on. And and I just imagine him kind of like, enraged almost, like already getting, uh, you know, upset at what people are saying about Jesus. And, and I think, man, if I'm Paul, what do I know about the coming Messiah? What have I found out and studied about the coming Messiah? Psalm 110, 1 through 4, go ahead and open your Bibles up. And this is one of the prophecies about Jesus, and, but that Paul would have been familiar with being a Pharisee and studying the scriptures. Psalm 110, 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he knows, I'm Paul, and I know this truth, that there is going to be a Messiah. He's going to be a kingly ruler. He's going to rule over all. He's going to rescue Israel. He's going to redeem Israel. He's going to be this awesome kingly ruler to rule over all of this. 
And so I know this. I know the law and I know the prophecies. And I know that as this Jesus character is speaking, as he's going about doing these things and that he's claiming to be of God, that he is broken commandments, he is blaspheming God. I know all these things. This isn't the Messiah. This isn't the Messiah that I pictured. This isn't the Messiah that I'm waiting for. This isn't what the old scriptures talk about. When I hear of his his death and resurrection, how he was betrayed. They say that he uh, that this is the Messiah, and and but the whole time I'm thinking this isn't my Messiah. There's no way he rose from the dead. That's absurd. That's impossible. And time goes on, I hear about the day of Pentecost and the tongues of fire and things happening and, uh, you know, people coming to follow this Jesus character. The people are giving up all their possessions. They're living selflessly, living as a family, all because of this Jesus character. No, that's not happening. That's not what the scriptures talk about. And even my mentor, he's the one, he comes and says, hey, if this isn't of God, it's going to die out. The guy that I learned from, the guy that helped pour into me to help me to know God, he says this is going to die out. So there's no way this is going to happen. And more and more people keep getting added on into the, the kingdom of heaven, and their numbers are added to daily. He w- like I picture Paul being that person in what our society, he would be the guy on Facebook or Instagram, hashtag not my messiah. He's, he's the guy posting all these terrible things, talking about, that's not my Messiah. No, no, no. Here's what the Bible says. Here's what the scriptures say. That's not my Messiah. So now let's talk about Stephen again. Let's go back to Stephen. Now that we know a little bit how, how, how Paul might have been feeling as he's seeing all this going on. We're going to walk in his shoes for a minute. We see this young man, Stephen. Stephen's full of wisdom. He's full of a spirit that nobody can even con- like come and stand against. Something like I've, nev- like I've never felt before. This Stephen character, he just he has so much good to say, and people are following Jesus because of what he is saying. People can't argue with him. People can't argue with him because of the spirit that's inside of him. And as I see all this going on, one day the crowd turns the crowd turns and a little bit of satisfaction starts to well up inside of me as i see the crowd turn on stephen and i feel something good inside i like where this is going i like that they're persecuting stephen satisfaction builds that continues to build up and the crowd goes deeper and deeper and they start to get wound up and they bring stephen in front of uh, the the pharisees and we're watching, and Stephen gives his speech. And Stephen gives his speech, and all the while I'm listening. I'm listening, hearing what's going on, and can't help but wonder how the crowd, the crowd is going to respond. And the crowd isn't moved. The crowd is not moved to follow Jesus, and that satisfaction to see this message dying out starts to grow a little more. And I notice the crowd getting enraged. I notice their teeth getting gritted, and I start feeling that satisfaction even more. And I watch the first, the first guy grab hold of him and start dragging him out of the city, and I know exactly what's going to happen. I know what's going on, and I'm going to follow that crowd along out there. And I watch as the first stone is thrown. Man, that feels good. Man, that feels good. 
And people come and they lay their garments down at my feet and they continue to throw stones at Stephen. And man, this is awesome. This message is going to die out just like Gamaliel said. And I chalk it up as a win. I chalk it up as a win. See, that felt good. And I'm going to squander this message of Jesus. Why? Because everything I ever knew, everything I ever, you know, studied about the scriptures and everything, it's not going to fade away because of this message of Jesus. Yeah, everything I know. So here's, I'm going to, like, as I paint this picture of maybe what Saul could have been feeling and maybe what was going through Saul's mind of these things, it might sound like I'm coming to Saul's defense. But it's just God's sovereignty and how he works through things and, and just what brought Saul to that point. So now we're going to switch gears for a minute, and we're going to talk about Philip, who, we, who, who was in this, uh, these verses. And as I was looking for some on Philip's background, I couldn't find uh, quite as much on Philip. Not sure where he was from how old he might have been, what, what kind of background he had um, in the scriptures. Um, there's not as much on him. What I did find out, though, when I Google Saul, the name Saul the Savage comes up. When I Google Philip, the name Philip the Evangelist comes up. And I feel like Thomas got the, the short end of the stick. When you Google Thomas, it says Thomas the Doubter. So the nickname department was not in uh, Thomas's favor. We got Saul the Savage and Philip the Evangelist and then Thomas the Doubter. But here's what I do know about Philip. Um, he was one of seven people um, that we learned about last week in this food distribution and helping out the widows. And in that, he was a student of God's word. He was one of the, the first missionaries that we hear of. He, um, in a later account, about 20 years after these events happened. He, um, he's still holding fast to the way, to the truth, the life that is found in Jesus. And, and we know this because Paul and Luke come to stay with him and his four daughters. And he tells Paul and Luke how he's got these four daughters and they've all been given the gift of prophecy. And so he's still holding fast to that. So now we're going to enter into Philip's shoes. And I think of the same stories. He's hearing the same things that Saul heard. He's hearing about the same miracles that Saul heard. He's, he's, so he's sitting there listening to somebody talk about Jesus walking on water. He's sitting there listening to somebody share to him about how Jesus died and rose from the dead. And it strikes him differently. It strikes him differently that this message of the cross, this message of what Jesus did on the cross strikes him differently. That he believes that what Jesus did was enough. He believed that when he came and lived this perfect life and he was wrongfully betrayed and he was put to death on this cross and when he resurrected, he conquered sin, Satan, and death. He believed that message and he decided, I'm going to follow that Jesus. He placed his trust in that Jesus of Nazareth that he heard about. That Jesus was who he said he was. And, he, and it, there's like this joy that uh, he's never felt before. And he's, I want to have that. I want that joy to just 
carry along with me for the rest of my life. I want others to have this message of Jesus. I want to serve this Jesus. I'm going to dive in, and I'm going to live for Jesus. And as he goes about living for Jesus and serving and telling people about Jesus, he's, he's chosen out of these seven men. He's, he's there at that, that those, serving those tables, and he's chosen these seven men so that the gospel can advance. That's, his, that's the whole reason he wants to live for Jesus, is so other people can know about Jesus. Now here's where... Um, I talk like I imagine being Philip and serving those tables, and it's because I serve along Tony, I serve along Chris, I serve along David, I serve along Mike, and you get to know these people that you're there closely with. And I'm there with my my seven friends, and we're all excited to be chosen as part of this. And I develop a relationship with these men, and I'm excited to have these these all these godly men that we're all here serving the same purpose, serving the same mission. And I have relationships with these men. They become my best friends, and I'm excited to be serving alongside them. And one of my friends, Stephen, man, he's awesome. I see how God is speaking through him. I see the Holy Spirit filling up in my friend Stephen. And I see just the wondrous signs and the things that are, doing th- that are being done through Stephen. And I think, man, how great is our God? And rather than getting jealous and, uh, you know, wanting attention for myself, I rejoice and pray for my friend Stephen that Jesus would continue to use him. And I'm there that, that same day that Saul was there. And I see the crowd turn. I see the crowd turn on my friend Stephen. And it's scary. I fear for Stephen. I fear for Stephen because I see what they did to Jesus. And I pray for God to stay, save Stephen. God, don't, don't let this happen. Don't let this happen to my friend. And the, the fear of this truth, hearing Jesus' words sink in, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. And that sinks in. I'm scared of what's going to happen to my friend Stephen. And I hear, I'm there, and I hear his speech. I hear his speech, and he tells them Pharisees where it's at and how it's going to be. And I think, ah, this is the moment, God. This is the moment you're going to save him, and all these men are going to come to Christ. And I get excited because I think that's going to happen. And the crowd gets mad. The crowd is enraged. They're gritting their teeth. And I fear for my friend Stephen, and I watch them as they drag him out. And I'm praying, God, no. And I watched him pick up the stones. And I watched the first stone thrown. And they begin just throwing stone after stone. And deep inside, I'm thinking, no, God! But I can't speak out. What am I going to do? I can't stop them. I can't speak out. And I see people going over to this, this man, Saul, that is supposed to be so great, and they're laying their garments at Saul's feet. And I watch as Stephen is being stoned, but at the same time, I see his actions, and he sees Jesus, and his eyes are fixed on Jesus. And he takes his last breath, and it says he went to sleep. Stephen dies. 
friend dies. And the easy thing for me to be right now was to say, this is your fault, God. You could have stopped this. Why didn't you stop this? Yeah, here we are because I didn't do that. This wasn't the way for Philip. This wasn't the way that Philip was going to go. Philip leans into Jesus. He leans in a little bit more, and he follows Jesus in what Jesus is asking him to do. I'm going to share some of my own account of what I got to see, how I got to witness this firsthand. And uh, I'm going to talk about my, my sister-in-law, Brienne. <laughs> Is there a tissue box somewhere? <laughs> I'm going to talk about my sister-in-law, Brienne, and her story a little bit. Oh, look at that. It's manly. Yeah, I'll take this. <laughs> I've got both. <laughs> <laughs> Um, thanks, Dave. For those of you who don't know, um, in 2011, uh, we lost my sister-in-law to cancer. And a little bit, uh, you know, in, in 2010, late 2010, um, she was diagnosed. Months went by, she did the radiation therapy, and um, it's kind of, you know, it's also, it's just such a blur because it was such a wild uh, time of emotions, but I remember she finished radiation and things seemed to be going well and the cancer seemed to have gone away. Well, she started to have pains and, and issues again and she went back and I remember it was in September and she had a checkup. We were probably at your guys' house praying during this time for this. And we got the message that it was bad. We got the message that the cancer had come back. And it was like, it was just devastating. Didn't know what to do. We'd been praying for a miracle. We were praying that that wasn't what was going to happen. And the cancer was back. And a few sh short months later, in November, I remember the phone call. It was a Monday morning. And we was laying in bed, and it was about 6 o'clock in the morning. And the phone started, Jess's phone started ringing. And I woke up, and she missed the call. And something inside of me knew exactly what had happened that morning. And the phone immediately rings back, and that almost just solidified. She's gone. She's gone. And Jess picked up the phone, and I think, I believe it was her sister Heidi that called her and, and told her, Brienne's gone. And I remember my wife falling out of the bed and just weeping and crying, and I didn't know what to do. I wanted to be there for my wife. I wanted to be this strong man and to be there for my wife. And I seen her just broken. And we went over that morning and we got to see um, Brienne before they took her out. And I remember looking at Brienne's face um, and seeing her laying there in the bed. And it almost looked like she was smiling. And then I just pictured, and I thought of this story of Stephen where Stephen's seeing Jesus and he's rejoicing. And I think, man, Brienne saw our Savior. 
She saw Jesus. He was there to walk her home. And here's where I got to see what, what, you know, the same thing that happened to Philip. Wouldn't it have been real easy for Jesse's family to sit there and point the finger at God. God, you could have fixed this. God, why didn't you fix this? God, you said, God, you, you said that if we pray and ask that you'll make it happen, God, why didn't you fix this? And they could have done that, but I watched Jesse's family, the whole family, lean into Jesus. Lean into Jesus a little bit more and make the gospel central to their lives. And that was a moment for me when I saw how this family reacted. But this became really real to me all of a sudden. That the way that their actions were into this happening, this relationship with God, this Jesus, yeah, I'd been going to church, yeah, I'd been serving, but it became really real at that moment. And it struck me to the core. And they went out proclaiming the gospel. The good news of Jesus in the midst of all their brokenness where they had to sit there and watch their daughter, their mother, their sister, sister-in-law, where they had to sit and watch her die. They go on proclaiming Jesus. And I was sitting with my mother-in-law the other night and I was talking to her about this and, and she says, I can't imagine going through this without Jesus. Man, that is so, like, it's so comforting to hear, like, and that's the message that we bring. This message of Jesus, this message of hope, and what we can look about in Stephen, and what we can look about in Philip, and what I've learned in Jess's family is that they, there's a deep understanding of what they all long for. And I, I pulled up this C.S. Lewis quote. I wanted to have it up on the board there for you, but um, I'll put it in kind of the notes of our sermon if you get online. And C.S. Lewis, he once said the fact that we long for something beyond the grave is a strong indication that it actually exists. And here's the quote. So that's kind of summing it up. Do fish complain of the sea for being wet? Or if they did, would the fact itself not strongly suggest that they had not always been or would not always be purely aquatic creatures? Then if we complain of time and take such joy in the seemingly timeless moments, what does that suggest? It suggests that we have not always been or will not always be purely temporal creatures. It suggests that we were created for eternity. Not only are we hurried by time, we some seem unable, despite a thousand def- generations, to even get used to it. We are always amazed by it, how fast it goes, how slowly it goes, how much of it is gone. Where we cry, has the time gone? We aren't adapted to it, not at home in it. If that is so, it may appear as a proof or at least a powerful suggestion that eternity exists and it is our home. Eternity exists and that is our home. Maybe you struggle with this hope that you have. Maybe you wrestle with it. Good, wrestle with it some more. Wrestle with the fact that something in you knows that you were created for more. You, me, us, we long for meaning. We long for something eternal. We were created with meaning by an eternal God. And we'll only be satisfied in relationship with him. Now with that understanding of what we long for, that hope we have, 
that eternity with him, the relationship with him, that we're going to be there eternally with him in that relationship. Doesn't that sound good? Doesn't that sound awesome, awesome, awesome? The gospel message is for everyone. And when we're obedient to what God is asking us to share this God with others, there's satisfaction and joy that nothing else can compare to. Everyone's invited. How is God going to use you in this gospel message? Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your amazing grace. I thank you for the work that you are doing in and through the people here at Gospel Community Church, God. And while I don't know what it is that they're going through, while I don't know what life looks like for them, you do, God. That's good news, God, because you are a good God. And I pray today, God, that you would just stir the hearts of people to share this hope that we have with others, that they would have an understanding of this hope that we have in you, God, and they would want to go out and share that with others. You didn't ask us to be shy and hide, God. You told us to be strong and courageous, God. This gospel message is for everyone, God, and I pray that we would be a church that shares this gospel message with everyone, God, that people would come to know Christ, God in our cities, in our homes, those closest to us, God, those people that we see in the store, God, that, they, we, that, that, that we'd always share this gospel message, God. I thank you for your amazing grace and the love that you have, God, and we say these things in Jesus' name. Amen.